Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey friends, thanks for joining a podcast. I want to tell you about something really new and exciting called patreon.com slash BP show. It's a great way to get uh, exclusive interviews with newsmakers, voicemails, personalized videos, political commentary, and early access to a special podcast called The Making of Bernie Sanders. Go to patreon.com slash BP show, patreon.com slash BP show. Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Today's the day. Bernie Sanders announcing and introducing Medicare for All with the support of 15, count them, 15 Democratic senators with more to come. Hey, hello, everybody. What do you say? It is the uh, Bill Press Show on Wednesday, September 13. Uh, uh, September 13 comes on a Wednesday, not a Friday. That's good. Great to see you today. Thanks so much for uh, getting up early in the morning and joining us here as we come to you live all across this great land of ours, uh, wherever you are in the United States of America, listening, watching, streaming, whatever. We are there with you. Good to see you today. Uh, And we look forward to romping through the headlines of the day, all the news of the day, telling you what's going on here in Washington, D.C., around the country and around the globe. And, of course, getting your comments, uh, inviting your comments on Twitter at BP Show. As we always say, Twitter does not belong to Donald Trump. He does not have a monopoly. Uh, There are at least uh, a few other people on Twitter, like Ted Cruz, watching porn, and you, all of you watching the uh, Bill Press Show. So we want to hear from you uh, at BP Show. Great guest today, Kathy bauman McLeod was a member of the Climate Change Commission down in the state of Florida until Rick Scott got rid of it just before Hurricane Irma struck. Now Standage covers the White House for The Hill. He's going to be in the studio with us and will be joined by the good congressman from California, Congressman Ted Lieu. All of that coming up with you and me. But first, this is Mr. The Full Jamie Court Benson. Press. Just a couple of other stories for you on this Wednesday morning. We begin with perhaps the biggest news from yesterday, Apple. Apple, yes. Marking the 10th anniversary release of the first iPhone, Apple announced several new products yesterday with the iPhone 10 being the bell of the ball. The iPhone 10 will retail at $999. No, come on. Aren't you calling it Apple X? Apple X, no? No, it's pronounced iPhone 10. Really? Yeah, they clarified it yesterday. It's not X. It's iPhone 10. They're, I guess, skipping nine. Uh, Here is Tim Cook introducing it yesterday at the new Steve Jobs Theater in Cupertino, California. This is iPhone 10. It is the biggest leap forward since the original iPhone. 
So there will be an iPhone 8 as well. But, and an 8 Plus. And an 8 Plus, but the iPhone 10 has some pretty interesting features. Of course, there is the uh, face recognition software, which we had thought was coming. You will be able to open your phone with yeah. your face. There is also no home button. Uh, you simply will be able to also open your phone with just a tap on the screen. This is uh, something that Android users were saying yesterday they've, they've already had for years here. Uh, the thing that scares me is that the both the front and back of the phone is glass, which makes it even easier to smash your phone yeah. screen uh, now on both sides. You going to buy an iPhone X? Probably. Really? Yeah. Uh-huh. You, you're uh, really excited about this, aren't you? Uh, I am. Uh, I uh, did an interview with the, the, the great Ron Owens out in San Francisco. Uh-huh. On KGO Radio yesterday, and uh, I know Ron's a real uh, techie uh, yeah. and loves gadgets. And I asked him, so I said, do you buy your iPhone X yet? I thought I'd call it that. Uh-huh. Anyhow, and he said, well, I'm not really sure he had somebody waiting in line for him. Wow. <laughs> no, I do it. You're I not going to make me wait in line, are you? Damn right. Oh, man. Get out there. All right. Uh, there's also some, uh, they up, uh, announced some new Apple Watches, some upgrades to the Apple mm-hmm. Watch, and an upgrade to the Apple TV as well. Hey, uh, exciting news for Democrats. Uh, it was it may have been election day for you yesterday or primary day for you yesterday. Democrats flipped two seats last night in New Hampshire and Oklahoma. Charlie St. Clair uh, won a special election to the New Hampshire House, 5644 becoming the first Democrat to win that district since 2012. That's a district Trump won 56-39 last year. In Oklahoma, Jacob Rosencrantz winning with 60% of the vote. Another district Trump won right. last year and as well. And the DNC was active in both those races as well yeah. as Our Revolution. That's how it's done. organizations as well. Yep. On TV and online, this is the Bill Press Show. Hey, here we go. And go, Bernie, go is the word for today. Hello, everybody. It is the uh, Bill Press Show on a Wednesday, Wednesday, September 13. Hello, hello. Great to see you. Uh, We've got lots to talk about. That's why it is good to have you with us wherever you happen to be in this uh, wonderful country of ours. Uh, for the next two hours, we're going to be uh, romping through the news of the day with our guests uh, and with all of you, and then sort it out and figure out what it all means and move on from there, all Americans, all together. We're looking at you on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show, our great YouTube uh, channel. Joining you, of course, on Free Speech TV nationwide, coast to coast, and check Chicago, how about it, WCPT? Welcome uh, to all of the uh, CP, uh, WCPT listeners out in the greater Chicago area. Remind you again, podcast, got to get those numbers up. Go to the podcast every day. Tell your friends about it, BillPressShow.com, uh, and let us uh, keep making every month a new record number of podcast subscribers. Sign up and don't get, as Jamie, don't forget, rather, as Jamie Benson says, to rate and review. Do it, man. Rate, rate and review. Rate and review. Yes, indeed. Uh, for our guest today, Kathy McLeod uh, is was a member of the Climate Change Commission. There actually was one down in the state of Florida appointed by Governor Charlie Crist. Governor Rick Scott, of course, got rid of it just when they needed it. 
she'll be in, and we'll talk about this connection uh, between hurricane activity and climate change. Is there any connection? What is the connection? What should we do about it? Niall Stanage, uh, our good friend from The Hill, columnist, White House columnist for The Hill at the briefings uh, every day. Uh, been a lot of um, fireworks the last couple of uh, briefings. Niall Stanage will be here as a friend of Bill for the entire hour to tell us, uh, to tell us about it. And we will be joined by an up-and-coming Democratic star, Congressman Ted Lieu from California. Uh, look forward to seeing the good congressman. Yeah, let's start there with the uh, uh, what going on at the uh, White House. Uh, yesterday, the president welcoming the prime minister of Malaysia to the White House. Uh, a, quite a controversial visit for a couple of reasons. Uh, but first of all, Donald Trump used the occasion. Notice uh, he did not have a news conference with the prime minister. Um, we'll get to that in just a second. But Donald Trump saying on North Korea... Yes, the um, U.N. Security Council did adopt another wave of sanctions to North Korea, but most 15 to nothing vote. Security Council, a good good uh, step forward for the United States, a good victory for the United States, got everybody on board. But even Donald Trump had to admit, which most others do, they don't do a hell of a lot. We had a vote yesterday on sanctions. We think it's just another very small step. Uh, not a big deal. And then Donald Trump again scaring us with his rhetoric, saying, yeah, well, we did those sanctions, but that ain't nothing compared to what we might do. Not big. I don't know if it has any impact, but certainly it, it was nice to get a 15 to nothing vote. But uh, those sanctions are nothing compared to what ultimately will have to happen. Again, those comments uh, made while he was welcoming the prime minister of Malaysia uh, to the White House, again, a visit with some controversy because uh, the Prime Minister of Malaysia is under investigation by our Justice Department uh, for having squandered, not squandered, having stolen something like $3.8 billion. Uh, in, a multi-billion dollar embezzlement scandal. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I think uh, it's 3.8. So it's a huge deal. I saw. Uh, and taking, getting that, this was government, government fund he controlled and, and using it to buy jewelry, to buy rights for Hollywood films, to buy new uh, to luxury um, properties, uh, in, all that money in his own pocket. Uh, also, uh, under uh, worldwide criticism from human rights groups uh, for um, very stern and repressive and uh, violent measures uh, against the Muslim population, the, a minority group of Muslims uh, in Malaysia. Uh, a man who probably should never have been invited to the White House in the first place, although we should add that President Obama did go to Malaysia while he was prime minister uh, as well. So he's a guy the United States, both parties, have looked the other way. And, of course, the prime minister of Malaysia came and he wanted to uh, uh, have a good meeting with Donald Trump and he wanted to um, you know, have a good relationship with Donald Trump. So where did he stay? Of course, he stayed in the Trump International Hotel. You know, our friend Annie Linsky has a really great piece on this this morning in the Boston Globe. And she notes, so I want to talk about the Obama uh, issue there. Obama did play golf with the prime I, minister I, I'm of sorry, actually played golf with played him. Played golf, yes. but has publicly criticized him uh, once he found out mm -hmm. what was going on with both the human rights abuses and the embezzlement scandal. But she notes, Annie notes something in her story that of the 32 foreign leaders from sovereign countries that Trump has invited to the White House so far, 
15 of them, 15 of the 32 rule over nations that either score in the bottom half of the global democracy ranking uh, or hail from countries like Saudi Arabia that have no pretense of democratic rule. Uh, but Donald Trump doesn't care as long as they spend money at his hotel. Donald Trump loves dictators. Yes, he loves dictators. A good, good way of putting it. Uh, he did yesterday thank the Malaysian prime minister for all your investments in the United States. Uh, he didn't add particularly your investments in my properties. Uh, and we thank you for your business. So for Donald Trump, again, it's ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. And, you know, right across the street from the White House is the Blair House right on Pennsylvania Avenue. That's where foreign leaders, prime ministers, usually stay. Well, put it this way, used to stay. Right. The problem is Donald Trump doesn't own the Blair House, so he doesn't get any money in his pocket if they stay at the Blair House, whereas if they stay at the Trump Hotel, boom. They should just make it painfully obvious when a foreign leader is staying at, at the Blair House, they have the flag of that foreign leader's country. They should put that flag outside the uh, Trump Hotel uh, you next know what? time that happens. They might. Uh, and to show you that this is not a um, uh, not a just a one time occasion, um, I did, uh, and I'm going to be careful here. But I did meet some uh, members of um, a delegation from another country, uh, this one in Europe, uh, last night, and I did uh, uh, ask them. I just briefly had conversation with them. I asked them where they were staying. Of course, they were also staying in the Trump Hotel. Wow. The word around the world is, you want to, if you come to Washington these days and you want a good reception, you stay at the uh, Trump Hotel. Also at the White House, it was another day for Sarah Sanders to double down on James Comey. Uh, you may remember I told you Tuesday I was, uh, no, 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 today, boom, Monday. I was there at the briefing when uh, Sarah Sanders was asked, first question out of the box, does the president agree with Steve Bannon that firing James Comey was the biggest political mistake in modern political history, Sarah Sanders saying, hell no, we got it right. This is Monday. It's been pretty clear what our position is, uh, and certainly I think that that has been shown uh, in the days that followed that the president was right in firing Director Comey uh, since director's firing. Uh, we've learned new information about his conduct. Yes. In fact, Sarah Sanders went on that day that he had given false testimony, that he had leaked top secret information to reporters and, and that he had violated Department of Justice procedures with that news conference that he held uh, on Hillary Clinton. Now, you know, uh, I'm not a huge, big James Comey fan, although um, I think Steve Bannon is right. It was the biggest political mistake in history because firing James Comey led to the appointment of Robert Mueller. But still, I think the White House has got to be a little—they're uh, a little loose. They should be a little more careful about accusing people of committing crimes without any evidence. There is no evidence. N he has not been accused. Uh, nobody but Sarah Sanders, to my knowledge, accuses him of, of lying under oath to Congress. Uh, and nobody yet has shown any evidence that James Comey leaked any information at all, let alone any sensitive information to reporters. So yesterday she was given another chance because people came back. Um, we were all stunned by what she told us on Monday. Uh, do you have any second thoughts about what she said about Comey? Uh-uh. She just, she just goes on the attack again. 
Everybody knows exactly where the president stands on that issue. The president uh, is proud of the decision that he made. The president was 100 percent right in firing James Comey. Uh, he knew at the time that it could be bad for him politically, but he also knew and felt he had an obligation to do what was right and do what was right for the American people and certainly the men and women at the FBI. You know, uh, I ran into a veteran reporter yesterday. Uh, at lunch who said he doesn't go to the briefings anymore because because of that stuff like that. He just said, you know, why go there and just let her lie, lie, lie and not be called into account for it? I mean, again, remember, remember also how it happened, right? When Trump fired James Comey, he put out this letter saying he fired him because he wasn't f- fair to Hillary Clinton. He held that news conference in the summer and he accused Hillary Clinton of being sloppy and he shouldn't have done that. So nobody believed that, but that was what Donald Trump said. He fired James Comey because he got out of line at the Justice Department and held this news conference on Hillary Clinton's emails, which he shouldn't have done. That's why I fired him, said Donald Trump. Then the next day he met with um, the Russian ambassador, Kislyak, and Sergei Lavrov, I think he is, the foreign minister of Russia, in the Oval Office, and he told them... I had to get that monkey off my back because of the Russian investigation, and I had to shut down this Russian investigation. And then we learned from James Comey that he got fired after Donald Trump said, look, you're looking into Michael Flynn. Michael Flynn's a good guy. Will you please drop this investigation? And Comey said no. So, I mean, Donald Trump himself lied about why he fired him. And then, again, what was the result of firing James Comey? The result was the appointment of Robert Mueller as a special counsel. Now, tell me how this was a good idea for Donald Trump, because now he not only has the FBI under Robert Mueller now investigating whether or not there was collusion between the Trump team and the Kremlin, which it certainly looks like there was. Every day we hear about more and more connections. But Robert Mueller is also investigating whether Donald Trump himself is guilty of obstruction of justice by trying to shut down an FBI probe of his administration. Steve Bannon was right. It is the dumbest, the biggest political mistake in modern political history. Be careful. When you say Steve Bannon is right, the devil appears Uh, right in front of you. I know. know. Don't say it three times in a row. Even the broken clock right a couple times a day. Yes, today, a big day in the United States House, uh, in the United States Congress, rather, when Bernie Sanders introduces his bill, Medicare for All, not calling it single payer anymore, but that's what it is. Medicare for all, correctly calling it Medicare for all. That's the idea. Introducing it today, it, Bernie's been fighting on this, you know, been fighting for this for decades. He's been a single payer guy since he was the mayor of, uh, of Burlington, Vermont. But, and he's introduced this bill before as the sole person on it. Bernie Sanders' bill, everybody laughed at him, nobody stood with him. Today, Bernie Sanders is introducing that legislation with the support of 15 Democratic senators, including almost all the senators who are being talked about, possibly, for running for president in 2020. Not only Bernie, uh, but Kirsten Gillibrand and Jeff Merkley and Kamala Harris uh, and Elizabeth Warren. Uh, as of yesterday, Tammy Baldwin from Wisconsin also got on board. Uh, Tammy Baldwin, who said that, um, oh, I'm sorry, she is the 
first senator from a state that Donald Trump carried. Swing state, yeah. Swing state to get on board. Uh, and so this movement is really growing. It's also reported that Al Franken uh, from Minnesota will join today when Bernie introduces the legislation. His office said that uh, I said that yesterday. Uh, so there are 15 on board, and then there are others who are, like, close, if you will. Uh, Sherrod Brown, our good friend from Ohio, Debbie Stabenow, our good friend from Michigan, both of them are supporting a modified version of Medicare for All, which is uh, you can buy into Medicare once you're 55. That's that's the position Hillary Clinton took during the campaign, which is a good step, but it's not it's not far enough and that doesn't go far enough. But the key is that Bernie got such support and during the Democratic primary of 2016 and was so successful in selling this ideas um, that uh, he's been able to line up all of that support. It is the pivotal issue, I believe, right today for Democrats. Bernie Sanders has a, uh, an op-ed in the New York Times this morning, uh, headline, Why We Need Medicare for All. Uh, just listen to the, the couple of facts here that Bernie lays out. Even though 28 million Americans remain uninsured, because you see, even under Obamacare, and they told us that, there would still be some 30 million Americans uninsured. So Bernie says it's 28 million. Even though 28 million Americans remain uninsured, and even more are underinsured, says Bernie, we spend far more per capita for health care than any other industrialized nation. In 2015, the United States spent almost $10,000 per person for health care. Imagine that, 10000 per person. In Canada, Germany, France, and the U.K., they spend less than half of that per person while guaranteeing health care for every single resident of the country. So what Bernie is showing, it's actually single-payer, Medicare for all, cheaper than our present system and covers more people. I think the basic question is on this issue is, do you believe that health care is a right, a birthright, that everybody should have health care, every American should have health insurance, health care, just simply because they're an American? Or do you believe that health care is something that only the wealthy should be able, those people who can afford it, should have? Whatever level of health care they have, depending on how much money they have, which means those who don't have enough money to pay the bills at the end of the month have no health insurance whatsoever. Uh, that's the basic question. And if you believe that health care is a right, as I do, then Medicare for all, single payer, uh, is really the only answer. Uh, and not everybody's there yet. I mean, as should this be a litmus test for Democrats? I don't like litmus tests. Um, I don't like litmus tests on any issue, whether it's guns or abortion even or, um, or Medicare for all. But I know what the position of the Democratic Party is and should be uh, on guns and on choice and on Medicare for all. Uh, and those who differ, as long as they're good on every other issue, we might accept them. But I think this is, a, this is the issue that the Democratic Party should be running on and will run on and will win in 2018 and, and 2020. Um, Leader Pelosi yesterday um, expressed, because we didn't have any 
sound on that, did we? No, Jamie. No, no. but she but, did say she does not believe that this is a litmus test. This was in response right. to Republican Senator John Barrasso from the state of yeah. Wyoming, who said, quote, the litmus test that, that the yeah. Bernie's bill will become, quote, the litmus test for the liberal left. No. Uh, well, he can say that, but uh, nobody else is saying that. But what, what Leader Pelosi was saying, which I cannot disagree with, is that our primary, our, our focus right now uh, has to be to prevent the Trump administration from totally destroying Obamacare, uh, which they are trying to do, and to shore up Obamacare. All right, well and good. I'm on board with that too. But in the meantime, we got to move beyond Obamacare. And, and I can't help but point out again that, uh, and as I did in my book, Buyer's Remorse, that I think that uh, President Obama missed a beat and missed an opportunity when at the very beginning of the debate on over health care in 2009, he said right off the bat, single payers off the table, we're not even going to discuss it. So he started by lowering the bar. He started by keeping insurance companies uh, in the game uh, and by tying ourselves to a more expensive system of health care, which we still have today because uh, under Obamacare, both the insurance companies and the pharmaceutical companies continue to make gazillions of dollars uh, and haven't cut their costs, uh, pardon me, at all. But the important point is Bernie Sanders will be there today with his bill with the support of uh, 15, uh, 15 Democrats. It's a big yes, day. It is a big day. Uh, and, um, boy, Ted Cruz spent the entire day uh-huh. yesterday, Jamie, trying to explain how he ended up uh, liking uh, a little porn movie that's been on the Internet, I guess, for a long time. It's about two minutes long. Now, look, since I am not a great big tweeter, (laughs) right, I don't use Twitter that much, explain how this could happen. This was his personal account. Could could anybody else, he says a staffer did it. Okay, so. Could uh, anybody else do it? I use a Twitter account, or excuse me, a Twitter app called Echo Phone, right? Okay. Uh, and, and there's other apps, the TweetDeck. You can use the official Twitter for iPhone app. You go, you're, you're able to use multiple accounts at the same time in one app, right? Mm-hmm. But you toggle around to different accounts in the main menu. So if I'm at my profile, or if I'm in your profile, right? I'm on, I'm on BP Show, and say it's late at night. And I want to tweet something, mm-hmm. and I just start tweeting it out, and I don't notice that I'm under the at BP show mm-hmm. account. Mm-hmm. It is pretty easy for me to just tweet thinking I'm tweeting on my own account, but I'm actually tweeting on yours. So one of his staffers could have been watching the porn, liked it, and wanted to send it around. It most likely would have been on a phone, I think, because this is more, yeah, right. it's easier for this to happen yeah, on, a phone, it on a phone than a computer. Watching it on a phone. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. they're scrolling through what they think is their timeline right. on their Twitter account, but they're <laughs> actually over on the Ted Cruz Twitter account, and they like it on that account versus their own. So it, it very well could happen, but- it also could have been. It also could have been Ted Cruz using his own Twitter account late at night. Yeah, and scrolling through the timeline. So you could have done this on my account. You yes. could have. Yeah, I, I could have done it. Me, Peter, Ray, anybody. Oh, I don't know about Ray. I I wouldn't trust Ray, man. She she'd be watching that board. 
She does okay. run the Twitter. She does run oh, yeah. a, a, the majority of the That's Twitter right. account right now. So uh, you never know. Yeah, it was pretty embarrassing for the senator from Texas. Uh, he didn't want to talk about it yesterday. He did not. Uh, he said it was the staff error. He did not identify the staffer. I don't know whether he knows who the staffer. Supposedly, they're going to have a meeting where the, everybody sits. The entire staff sits down, and they're going to wait until the staffer who supposedly did it raises their hand. Oh, is that what they're going to do? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Mm hmm. Uh-huh. I hope everybody raises their hand at the same time. <laughs> the or everybody s- raises their hand and points it at Ted Cruz. <laughs> you know, one other funny thing about this, the porn star, I don't have her name, but the porn star who's featured in the movie, she uh, she came out with a statement and she said, you know, I, I like that he was looking at my porn. I just wish he would have paid for it. Oh, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, we have um, uh, also, you know, the political season, it just gets longer and longer. And more ridiculous uh, the earlier these campaigns start. Uh, Donald Trump himself started running for re-election the day after he was sworn into office. He has already held, I think, three campaign rallies, campaign rallies, uh, as president. This is in the first half of 2017. 2017, if you will. And has come close to turning official speeches as president into campaign into rallies, campaign which rallies. is not allowed. And he is raising money. He has had fundraisers for his re-election campaign. Uh, and he, yesterday, uh, the RNC came out with the first um, p- political p- commercial of the 2020 presidential race. Here it is. Donald Trump, how great he is. Career politicians and the media trying to stop him. But President Trump is fighting for America. Over one million new jobs, companies investing billions in America, stock market reaching all-time record highs, our border more secure, cracking down on MS-13, our economy winning again, Americans working again, our country strong again. Americans are saying, let President Trump do his job and make America great again. I'm Donald Trump, and I approve this message. What the hell? What, what job is, is he trying to do? Yeah, what, what going, it's just, you know, you were elected president, so at least try to be president for, like, maybe a couple of years. Let's at least get through the midterms before you start bragging about your record. By the way, all those things that they say he accomplished, he did, has not accomplished uh, in the first six months. He hasn't gotten anything done. But just the idea that they are out there running political ads for Donald Trump whom you couldn't possibly vote for if you wanted to uh, until until 2020. It's just uh, it's just ridiculous. Uh, something else I find ridiculous, uh, and, and thanks to Politico, we can just run through these. Uh, the Hillary Clinton's book uh, officially released was it yesterday, I believe. Yesterday was the release yesterday date. Yesterday was the release date. Uh, Politico went through the book. Uh, I haven't even gotten a copy yet. And um, listed the 12 people that Hillary Clinton blames for her loss to Donald Trump. Uh, The list includes, I'll just run through them. She blames, uh, in no particular order, uh, James Comey, Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump, of course, Joe Biden, Vladimir Putin, Chuck Todd, of all people. Because Chuck Todd, moderator of Meet the Press, one time said, that she always came very prepared for Meet the Press, perhaps even too prepared, uh, and Hillary Clinton uh, says that helped undermine her. That statement, anyhow. Uh, she also blames uh, Mitch McConnell, Michael Flynn, former National Security Advisor, 
Jill Stein, uh, the Green Party candidate, Julian Assange, Matt Lauer from NBC for the job that he did once as moderator, and then finally, number 12, she blames uh, collectively Fox News, Rupert Murdoch, and Roger Ailes. Uh, Notice for her loss to Donald Trump in November 2016, the person missing from the list is Hillary Clinton. Let's take another look at Hurricane Harvey, Hurricane Irma, and climate change. Is there any connection? Kathy McLeod, who was managing director of Coastal Risk, or she is now managing director of Coastal Risk and Investment for the Nature Conservancy, but a longtime resident of Florida and a former member of the Florida Climate Change Commission, joins us here in studio. Coming up next. And long walks in the woods and playing with my dogs and yoga, alternate nostril breathing, which I highly recommend. Get social with Bill Press. Like us at Facebook.com slash Bill Press Show. This is The Bill Press Show. Same great show, new great channel. Stream live video at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. So here we go on a Wednesday, September 13. Uh, thanks for being with us, folks, uh, all across this great land of ours on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show, on Free Speech TV, coast to coast, and also out in the Chicago area. Hello on WCPT. We're coming to you live from our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., our studio right here on Capitol Hill, where we're brought to you today by the United Steelworkers and their international president, Leo Girard, the United Steelworkers, North America's largest industrial union representing over 1.2 million active and retired members. Uh, find out all about their good work at usw.org. Uh, it is um, not over yet. The cleanup is going to go, be going on for a long time. As is this morning, according to CNN, still 4.4 million people uh, without power in the state of Florida. Uh, Many people still not uh, permitted to get back into the Keys because it's still a dangerous area. They haven't checked the stability of all the bridges and the roadways uh, in the Keys. Um, 38 dead attributed to Hurricane Irma in the Caribbean, another 16 in the United States. And it's going to be a long, long haul of recovery. Uh, One who is very active uh, in the state of Florida on the issue of hurricanes and climate change uh, Kathy Bauman McLeod joins us in studio. Uh, she was a member of the Florida Energy and Climate Commission when there was one, right? Uh, she now is uh, the managing director of climate risk and resilience for the great nation. Na- I'm, I'm sorry, Nature Conservancy, right? Kathy, good to see you. Good morning. Good Thanks morning, for coming in. So, um, when what was this Energy and Climate Commission? This was a Jeb Bush creation. The Energy and Climate Commission was a creation of Charlie Crist. Wow. And when Charlie Crist became the governor, there was um, a renewed interest and several um, governors around the state, including Arnold Schwarzenegger, they were looking at climate for the first time from a state perspective, many of them, not all of them. And he created um, an energy and climate task force to start out to get an understanding of what what are Florida's risks and how should we be preparing and 
how do we stop emitting greenhouse gases? And he put a lot of um, a lot of excitement into climate change for the first time. A, a real visionary in the, on that issue. For for a time, yes. Had other governors beforehand done nothing about it? I mentioned Jeb Bush. I was just sort of kidding. I didn't think he did it, but uh, you're right. You're right. That was the the first time that there was an executive branch discussion of climate change when Charlie Crist got elected. Was he? Remind me. Was he a Democrat or a governor? A, a he Republican was a Republican at the, at the time. He was. He was a Republican at the time, leading the way, and so was Arnold was. Schwarzenegger. That's right. That's right. Uh, yeah, that's right. right. There was a time, as you and I know, when uh, the conservation movement or the environmental movement was led by conservatives. And conser- <laughs> yeah, by. <laughs> By conservative. So what happened to this commission? Well, the the task force um, evolved into a commission Mm -hmm. that was smaller, and there was a a big package of legislation that was focused on how do we reform our energy uh, strategies, looking at green energy and a low-carbon future for Florida, and thinking about what are the adaptation strategies. And um, we began to, uh, this was the time when we were in the Recovery Act time. So we had ERA money. We had the American Recovery Act funding that came through and did lots of new energy, green energy projects in the states. And so the Energy and Climate Commission did both looking at those uh, projects that came through for clean energy and also made policy recommendations to the legislature about how can we make that transition and uh, address climate change. And what connection, if any, did you make, were you able to make at the time between hurricane activity, increasing hurricane activity, increasing intensity of hurricanes, and climate change? At the time when we began, we started talking about energy first. Did you meet with scientists first. at the time? Yes, and there were several scientists on these commissions and task force. And so we had all the expertise you can imagine. We had even international expertise. The British government was spending money in the states to try to bring um, good, smart climate policy at, in certain states where they thought there was a lot of uh, opportunity to try to move both mm-hmm. the, on the mitigation side and, and on the adaptation side. So uh, our focus was was about energy and about the, the emissions and less about storms. You know, in 04 and 05, that's when the state had, um, I don't know, how many, how many do we have in a row? You know, four or five storms in those two seasons. And so... Um, we were really focused on the energy side. hadn't quite gotten to mm-hmm. what is climate change doing to these storms, uh, and boy, that brings us to today. Well, as, right. So as you look at hurricane, what you've seen of her, have, with your experience of Hurricane Harvey and then Hurricane Irma, can we say that climate change caused these hurricanes? No, we can't say that it caused them. What we can say is that it's exacerbating the factors that are creating the storms. And so warmer water and more water in the system is more fuel for bigger storms. So uh, climate change, think of it as the uber exacerbator of Mm. these issues of drought and flood and fire and urban heat island effect. You know, cities are hotter than ever and climate is just exacerbating that. And from a global perspective, if you throw in migration and urbanization and uh, population growth, you know, we're gonna be at 9.5 billion people. um, You've got a lot of issues converging for um, huge risk for people and for property. Uh, is that true also of um, increased number and intensity of, can you can you make the same link, increased number and intensity of tornadoes, uh, wildfires in the West, uh, drought conditions? I'd say generally yes, but there's the science, you have to go each by each one and look at each one and look at the science. And so there's bigger bodies of science in some than others. I would say on hurricanes, absolutely conclusive on stronger, no question. And you can look, just look at the um, 
you know, the hockey stick chart that shows yeah, you the yeah. storms and their size and even um, new things, thinking about the way that the not just air temperatures and water temperatures, but it could mean that the season is different or the place where hurricanes happen is different because we're warmer. Hurricanes, that path that we see might move north because it's warmer north or that um, the season could start earlier or go later. Now, um, I missed a beat there. I, I, I was on the, in the, on the track of asking you, so does this commission... You Energy and Climate here, Commission. Energy I live in Washington, commission. yeah. Does it still exist? It does not. What happened it to it? It was not. Um, shortly after Governor Scott was elected, the new legislature um, essentially abolished the Energy and Climate Commission. The legislature or the governor? Well, the legislature um, does that in their legislative capacity and... The executive branch. I don't. I think the legislation required that. I mean, the, Scott's the a climate person. denier, isn't he? Uh, I think his it? quote is his quote has been that he's not a scientist. Oh yeah, yes. like some members of Congress say as well, right? Yeah. Uh, they're also, yeah. Uh, as you know, Washington is full of climate deniers. Sadly, one of them um, is the administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency, um, Scott Pruitt, who. Um, Right after uh, Hurricane Harvey in, in late August, um, he took a line that I've heard also at the White House, which is, don't even ask me about climate change right now because uh, we should be talking about uh, bodies floating in the water, I guess. Uh, here's Scott Pruitt. For uh, opportunistic media to use events like this to, without basis or support, just to simply engage in a cause, cause and effect type of uh, discussion and not focus upon the needs of people. I think it's displaced. So I guess you and I, we're displaced right now that we would even dare talk about uh, any connection between climate change and hurricanes when there's so much damage to still be cleaned, cleaned up. Well, I think what it's... What do you say to that? I, I would say first we start with science and um, care for people. And if we... It's not that you, it has to be one or the other, no, right? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. They go together. And so... Um, of course, our concern is for people in um, that are displaced, people that are um, woke up and found their property destroyed and have lost loved ones. That is that is, of course, of great concern. But um, the two are um, linked, and it's uh, it doesn't it doesn't make sense for us to talk about see these storms and see them get bigger and stronger and just just. With our own eyes, we don't we don't need to to um, really do much research to say they're bigger and they're stronger. And why is that? And don't we want to prevent that? Don't we want to stop yeah. that from happening in the future and lessen the suffering and reduce the damage and lower our our risk? Just yeah, as a, no, as I a think country. you're absolutely right. That if you really do genuinely care about the victims and care about these people, then of course you want to look at what's happening and why. And how can we make sure the next time perhaps there are fewer victims? So this came up Monday. I was at the briefing at the White House. And uh, uh, Tom Bossard, who's the president's uh, Homeland Security Advisor, um, was, uh, came into the briefing room. Uh, and Jim Acosta from, from CNN asks him, I mean, is this the question we've been d d kicking around here? I mean, um, you look at, in Florida, in Texas rather, three 500-year storms. In three years, you look at this year. You've Hurricane Harvey, uh, Category Five, and then right away followed by Hurricane Irma, right within a week. And then you got Hurricane Jose, which fortunately is now going out to sea. Don't forget I Katya. Mean, 
and Katya, which hit the Gulf, uh, right. Mexico, right? Right. So uh, do, shouldn't we be making some connections? So here's Jim Acosta from CNN trying to get an answer out of Tom Bossert. Does the thought occur to you, geez, you know, maybe maybe there is something to this this climate change thing and its connection to powerful hurricanes? Where uh, where you just separate the two and say, boy, these are a lot of big hurricanes coming our way. Well, I don't know if I say either, but I do note that there's a cyclical nature of a lot of these hurricane seasons, and uh, I think. Uh, the scientists for their forecast on this particular one, uh, they were dead on that this would be a stronger and more powerful hurricane season with slightly more than average large storms making landfall in the United States. So we'll have to do a larger trend analysis at a later date. So, you know, he's kind of dancing around with that. Yeah, sure, the, the forecasters were right on target, but that doesn't answer the question. Right? But, I, I've, it's, it's just clear. It's just clear, and we, um, we know what the causes are, and we know what to do about it. And we need to do it. Um, you know, it, it's it's that it's that simple. And when you look at those storms, and we're focused on the U.S. and uh, Americans, of course, at any moment, you know, there are sixty-eight thousand people every single day displaced by climate. Sixty-eight thousand every single day. Worldwide? So worldwide. So think about displaced the, by rising sea levels. Uh huh. Uh huh. Rising sea levels, drought. Um, you know, climate is the um, underpinnings of so many of the conflicts and the problems that we have. Wow. Um, and, you know, we look at the, the U.S. military and the way that they are approaching climate and see what the, the U.S. Navy and the Army and what they have done in their own um, in their own dealings and operations around the world to try to uh, mitigate the effects of climate on their on our security. It's a security issue. The, um, the channels that were not passable for shipping will be passable soon. Those bring new challenges for us. So it's it's just a, it's a reality, and it is um, not something just for us to look at in the U.S. And so as we're looking at CNN, watching what's happening, you saw the Caribbean was completely devastated, and there are storms, uh, monsoons in India that are um, having those huge impacts. So every single day, sixty-eight thousand people, and you can we could be talking about we just named those storms. There are yeah. typhoons happening in the in Asia Pacific region. So it's. It's happening. <laughs> now, as a longtime Floridian, um, Miami's, if, if you have any doubts about climate change, you go to Miami, right? I mean, yeah. what is the situation in Miami? Sunny day flooding and the, Sunny day flooding. And the king tides. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Caused yeah. by? Caused, exacerbated by ex- climate change. Again, yeah. exacerbated. So you have a full moon and a high tide and sea level rise. And one of the particular challenges of Miami-Dade is you have in Florida that um, karst topography, which makes the, it's we, it's the substrate, the, the soil is um, like Swiss cheese. And so water moves very easily and the water table is very close to the, to the um, surface. And so you have saltwater intrusion. So you have saltwater coming into freshwater supplies. And so you have to pump the saltwater back. Mm-hmm. And so part of what you um, one of the biggest challenges for uh, well, communities all over will be how do we how do we pay to keep the salt water out of our drinking so water? So what's Miami doing about it, or what can Miami do about it? Well, there are a lot of things that that Miami can do, and I think has begun to do. And the mayor there has um, hired a, a chief resilience officer, and the Rockefeller Foundation has an initiative called 100 Resilient Cities, and so they have funded chief resilience officers, CROs, you know, we love acronyms, CROs in in all the cities around the world to focus on how do we, there's a financial package in this, but also what do we do about this? And so you look at analogs like uh, the Netherlands and think about floating cities and think about where are the, um, you look at New York has even 
strategic buyback programs after storms. When you have a lot of repetitive loss properties, you buy them. So don't build on them again. Let's let give it back to nature because it's going to flood. And so there are multiple strategies. Well, are they talking about, too, like, I don't know whether you would call them seawalls. Here we are, build another wall, right? Or dikes or... Well, and, you know, of course, I, 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 um, I'm a conservationist and I work for the Nature Conservancy. So one of the very best strategies for climate is nature itself. And so coral reefs and oyster reefs and mangroves and coastal marshes, they are wonderful seawalls and barriers and sponges to storm surge, which is one of the biggest risks, for, particularly mm-hmm. from, from Irma. And so, um, you know, I just have to mention that the chief resilience officer of Miami-Dade County is the former chair of the Energy and Climate Commission in Florida, Jim Murley, who's a, um, a friend and um, But are they talking about can. physical structures? Yes, we are talking about physical structures and talking about nature-based defenses and about how do we plan for... Um, managed retreat is one of the ways that we talk about it. And so don't you have to accept the fact also that there's going to be loss of property, right? I mean, some of those high rises in Miami right right on the beach, right on the coast, they're not going to be there that much longer. Well or private homes. Yes. And there and you'll see particularly I've got some phone uh, some pictures in my phone that a friend from Texas sent of houses that are just falling in and that you see that all over you see that on coastal properties all over the place so yes that's happening and so we have more science more data more predictive capabilities than ever to be able to say this is where we don't want to build you know let's let's go right. over here and we've got a lot of tools to right. make so those decisions. I know that your commission was the work of your commission was cut short um, but in, in to the extent that you had reached any conclusions by then I mean, so you can build all these walls, you can do all these, take all these steps, but you can't just hold off the water, right? I mean, there's no, got to be, nope. there's got to be action to act to reduce our contribution Exposure. to yes, oh, and to stop emitting the gases that yeah, are making exactly. it hotter, that are making it worse. Right. So, what can a <laughs> yeah. state, what can a state like Florida do about that? Well, and I, I know this is um, this is well known, but. We're at a point where no matter if we stopped emitting greenhouse gases right now, we still have to adapt. Those those things that are set in motion, um, the polar ice caps are have melted. We can't refreeze them. You know, yeah. we're, so we have what we have. Right. So a lot of it's going to be about adaptation and figuring out do we give 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 it back or let it go. And sometimes you'll have no choice. You'll have buildings that will fall in or you take them down before they fall in. But um, but we need to address the cause that's what I'm getting to, immediately, right. yeah. immediately, and lots of states have done that, and you've seen that state initiative from Governor Brown in California to pull states like New York and Washington and others into, um, I'd say, an alternative. So, track. are we talking about electric cars? Are we talking about um, more wind, more solar, all more of it, less, all of it? And I would say we have the technology that we need. This is not something far out in the future. We have the technology. We now have the battery storage that we are Mm -hmm. uh, requiring. You know, we used to say, well, yes, it's nice when the sun shines and the wind blows, but if it stops, we don't have it. That's not the case anymore. We have have battery technology that lets us store the power. We have electric cars. We have... Um, low the 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 um, standards for auto emissions. We you know we could look at our sectors of society and the task force in Florida took Florida's uh, industry sectors and went one by one and identified what are the early actions we can take right now, which would have been in two thousand nine, and start right now and stop emitting those gases and uh, contribute in the. You know, the Paris Accord is that's what the Paris Accord is about, is about tracking those emissions reductions and uh, reporting them. So Donald Trump pulled us out of the Paris Accords. 
uh, as we've discussed here on our show, um, it's, it takes three years, and then there's another year of paperwork. Right. So technically, we would not be out of the Paris Accords until I think it's Election Day 2020, something around that time. So yeah. we might escape with a new president and get back in, right? We might. But in the meantime, uh, is it possible that collectively the states can make up for or offset Donald Trump's action by pulling out of Paris? Yes. And they negate what he did, I guess. Yes, I think so. And things march forward. Uh, The Paris Accord keeps going. You saw the, I think it was the G20, was it the G7 or the G20 that met and essentially they all had a meeting and he, you know, he wasn't. He was the odd man out. He was not participating and they moved ahead with plans and um the world will go on this year in bonn um fiji the island of fiji is hosting the cop in bonn and fiji is still there fiji is still there a lot of those islands are yeah i know i should because some of them are and some of them are are people have already evacuated climate refugees i mean we have climate refugees in the u.s you know we 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 think of them as far away in Pacific Islands. They're not. They're in places like lowland uh, Louisiana, towns that are moving away from the water. And um, EPA gave a grant to a town in Louisiana to help move the town because of sea level rise. I didn't know this. Well, I mean, you know, I hadn't heard that phrase, climate refugees. Mm -hmm. It's a Mm -hmm. scary phrase. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. we've seen that also in Alaska. That's right. Right? That's right. There's an island there that is no longer habitable or soon will not be. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the idea that there's still so many climate deniers out there is uh, pretty scary. Well, so I wanted to ask also about sure. this. The New York Times today, the lead article is U.S. shows signs of improvement in aid response, um, basically making the case that um, we have learned a lot since yeah. Katrina. Yeah. And um, people have pointed out that that relatively few people died as a result of this storm mm-hmm. compared to Katrina, mm-hmm. certainly, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. 38 or 60 or whatever it is, is too right. many. But, yes, of course. But not as many as we feared. We had more than 1,000 in Katrina. Right, yeah. right. So um, d- do you agree that that uh, our response has Im- improved? And um, what do you contrib- attribute it to? Well, I think... Um, a lot of that is just we learn every time we have a disaster, and unfortunately, every time we have one of these disasters, we uh, get smarter about how the next one comes and or how to respond to the next one, but also what do we do to try to prevent. So there uh, are lots of investments after a storm in the recovery, and you'll see those in our federal agency budgets of how do we respond um, and what are we going to spend the response money on, not just in humanitarian relief and aid, but but how will we rebuild? And will we rebuild better and less um, in a less exposed way or, you know, with lower risk? And the technology of early warning systems has gotten better. The usage of using your phone, um, there are technology mm-hmm. ways. There are other ways. So, I yes, we've absolutely gotten better. And the forecasters this time were absolutely spot on. Really, right? really, really precise. Right. Yeah. And our technology and satellites and all that sort of stuff are just better than ever. And so, yeah. Uh, uh, and building materials? Well, it depend- also? the materials, but it also depends on the building code. What, oh, that's what, yeah. yeah. What building has the state, what is the cover. count? Exactly, exactly. And so, um, I have a, a uh, colleagues from Mexico that are here this week, and they were talking about the earthquake. And the earthquake was um, closest to Chiapas, but in Mexico City, they still felt it was an eight point, you know, something yeah. three. And 
Mexico City did not have damage, and they believe it's because of their increased building code. And so building code has a lot to do with how uh, buildings withstand. And then there's the, the question of there was a picture of Brickell Avenue, which is the main financial district of Miami. Mm-hmm. And it, I, I, don't t- I can't tell you from the photo what the height of the water was, but the buildings are intact because the building code is strong, but a building code doesn't protect you from flood and, and storm surge. And so the building code is one piece. Um, you'll have, you know, there are other pieces that we'll have to address, and I anticipate we'll get better at the next one, but flood is still, um, you know, it's the, it's the talk of the insurance industry. Uh, and, of course, shame on us because we didn't give all the credit for the uh, uh, um, incredible recovery efforts in Texas and Louisiana uh, and uh, Florida. We didn't give all the credit to Donald Trump because, you know, of course, he's Well, he's I will say greatest, so. Craig Fugate, who is the former FEMA director, um, is, a, is the former um, emergency director mm-hmm. of Florida. And so in the 0405 hurricane season and through Andrew, we got so much great experience. So Florida's pretty good at response. All right. Kathy McLeod, so good to see you. Thanks so much Thank for coming Thank you for in. having the me. The Nature Conservancy, great organization. You can check out their work at nature.org. Absolutely. Nature.org. We'll be right back with now Stanage on this the White House. is the Bill Press Show. Hey, everybody, this is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for the Bill Press show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. It is the day, the big day, when uh, Bernie Sanders introduces Medicare for All. This time, it's not going to be the one and only lonely uh, Bernie Sanders doing so. He will uh, introduce Medicare for All with the support of 15 uh, Democratic senators. Hello, everybody. Big day in the U.S. Senate. Big day for the Democratic Party. Big day for Bernie. And a big day for all of us. It's good to have you with us uh, on the Bill Press Show this Wednesday, September 13. Coming to you live from Washington, D.C., as always, with the news of the day. What's happening uh, at the White House uh, here uh, on close to our studio uh, in the United States Congress, but also around the country, around the globe. Uh, we will keep you up to date and with a special eye on the recovery efforts uh, continuing down in Florida. Meanwhile, big day at the White House yesterday, the Prime Minister of Malaysia on deck and Sarah Sanders firing again away again at James Comey uh, in the briefing room. Niall Standage for The Hill, columns, White House columnist on the scene and in studio with us this morning. Hello, Niall. Morning, Bill. How are oh, you? How are you? These Good. are busy days. Always. always one thing we days. can say about Donald Trump is for the news biz... He keeps us hopping, huh? He Business keeps us is gainfully booming. employed, for sure. Yeah. Business is booming in the media. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. No, indeed. Uh, so we will get into uh, all of that, and with your help as well, send us your comments on Twitter, at BP Show. Niall and I 
we'll have the pleasure of welcoming Congressman Ted Lieu, rising star in the Democratic Party from California, to the studio in just about a half an hour. We'll jump right into it. But first... This is the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories for you on this Wednesday morning. We begin in the sports world, the sports media world, that that is. ESPN host Jamel Hill, who is African-American. She hosts ESPN's uh, trademark 6 p.m. broadcast of SportsCenter. She posted a series of tweets Monday about Donald Trump, uh, calling him, quote, a white supremacist who surrounds himself with other white supremacists, and, quote, the most ignorant, offensive president of my lifetime. She's not wrong. Uh, however, ESPN, who has come under fire from conservatives. It's not a very ESPN-y thing to do, right? No, but, but Jamel Hill is an American. She should be able to share her thoughts publicly. ESPN scolded yeah. <laughs> Hill in a statement yesterday saying her comments about Trump, quote, do not represent the position of their network. She's got a lot of folks on Twitter who are on her side, including Colin Kaepernick, who tweeted that oh. uh, he's got her back. So, uh, the tough situation for Jamel Hill uh, and ESPN. Uh, moving on to last night's... Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm not saying she's wrong either. Yeah. But uh, for a sports reporter to be talking politics is not necessarily, I think, good for the business of ESPN. Well, yeah, maybe it's like not. on the Weather Channel. You wouldn't want the Weather Channel people to stand up on the end of that pier and say, damn Donald Trump. No, of course not. But she was talking in response to Charlottesville. And I don't think that you should tweet at a sports reporter, stick to sports, which is the most common mantra that uh, conservatives on Twitter do with any time a sports writer will talk about politics. I think it's silly. During last night's nationally televised... I'm watching a sports game, I don't want the sportscaster talking politics. I'm sorry. Okay. Not even if I agree with him. I disagree. During last night's nationally televised hand-in-hand telethon to raise money for Hurricane Irma and Harvey recovery efforts, singer-songwriter Stevie Wonder opened his performance with a direct message to climate change deniers. Hmm. Stevie Wonder said, quote, anyone who believes there's no such thing as global warming must be blind or unintelligent <laughs> no he actually said that Did last he really? night he also talked generally about human beings and their Stevie. relations to the planet he said quote when love goes into action it preferences no color of skin no ethnicity no religious beliefs no sexual preferences and no political persuasions it just loves he then launched into lean on me with the help of the houston gospel choir Oh, wow. Yeah. I wish I'd seen that. It sounded pretty powerful. Yeah, it really does sound powerful. Lots coming up here. Stay tuned. We'll uh, cover it all with Niall Stanage and the Bill Press Show. On your radio, on TV, and online. This is the Bill Press Show. It is a Medicare for all day in the United States Senate. Bernie Sanders uh, dropping that legislation. Something he has done uh, many times in the past. Something he's fought for for uh, his entire life. Uh, his entire political life for sure. But today, a uh, big difference. He's doing so with a company of a lot of Democratic senators. Fifteen of them, in fact. It's the Bill Press Show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the program. Good to see you today on this Wednesday, September uh, 17, as we do what we always do, coming to you live from Washington, D.C., with the news of the day, not just what's happening here in Washington, around the country, 
uh, around the globe, bringing it to you and look forward to hearing from you. Uh, your thoughts on what it all means, send us your comments on Twitter at BP Show. Uh, Jamie Benson will be monitoring those comments and bringing the best of you to uh, join the program. Uh, Give us all your hot takes. I might read them on air. Hot takes. That's right. Hot takes. Yes. Uh, And we're looking at you on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show, on Free Speech TV, and joining you on the great progressive voice, progressive megaphone in Chicago of WCPT, Niall Standage, White House columnist for The Hill, good friend of the program, in studio with us. Niall, hello again. And... um, Sarah Sanders just won't let up on James Comey, huh? <laughs> She's been very uh, strong in insisting that James Comey should at least be facing the possibility of uh, prosecution. The rationale for that, I think, is the White House's continuing assertion that he gave uh, false testimony in suggesting that President Trump had um, warned him away from investigating Mike Flynn. Comey, of course, denies that. Comey does have virtually contemporaneous memos uh, suggesting obviously that he's right and that he it's not false testimony. But I think the broader picture, uh, Bill, is the White House trying to attack and undercut uh, Comey and through that to try to undermine the legitimacy of these probes that are ongoing into Russian matters. Right. Uh, I wasn't there yesterday, but I was there with you Monday. It was Monday when uh, it started because uh, where the very first question, as you remember, off mm. the block was, whether or not the president agreed with Steve Bannon's uh, comment to 60 Minutes that firing James Comey was the biggest political mistake in modern political in modern history, Steve Bannon, of course, at the time was Donald Trump's senior advisor. He insists he uh, recommended against it, and uh, that again was this huge mistake. Sarah Sanders says, "Oh no, not at all." Here she is from Monday been pretty clear what our position is uh, and certainly I think that that has been shown uh, in the days that followed that the president was right in firing director Comey uh, since director's firing uh, we've learned new information about his conduct uh, and she went on just as you point out to say he uh, gave false testimony he leaked sensitive information to reporters mm-hmm. uh, and he broke the rules at Justice Department with that news conference he held in, in July about Hillary Clinton's emails. Mm-hmm. I must admit, I don't know about you, I was stunned to hear her say that. I mean, she, mm-hmm. she, and she doubled down on it yesterday, she, and it, 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 accusing Comey again of breaking the law and suggesting the Department of Justice ought to investigate and prosecute him. Yeah. I mean, this is war. No, right? it is. It's it's quite amazing, and I'm not sure, to be perfectly frank, how realistic even Sarah Sanders, in her heart of hearts, believes that to be. I think it is a tactical thing to try to uh, besmirch Comey's reputation. And, you know, I wouldn't say that Steve Bannon is probably the most popular man in the world with your listenership, uh, Bill, but I do think that he had a point about the political mistake of firing Comey. Because it was the firing of Comey that has ultimately led, as Bannon pointed out in that 60 Minutes interview, to the appointment of Bob Mueller, uh, which then has proven, I think, the single most dangerous I think Bill is warming on Steve Bannon. He's no, coming around to a pro-Bannon. did say not, earlier but, that he agreed with him. So no, I was just going to say, I'm glad to hear you say that now, because earlier in the show I did say Steve Bannon was right, right. because it did lead to... Uh, Robert Mueller, mm-hmm. special counsel, 
and an investigation into obstructing justice. I just see Bannon was saying, Jamie gave me holy hell for saying that. So thank you I for said, reinforcing my point Bannon of view. I said if you say Steve Bannon is right three times in a row, the devil will appear right in front of you. So be careful. That's all I'm saying. More to the point, I'd worry that people will log off their uh, you, no. YouTube channel or something no, like that. Don't leave us. About that. No, all we're saying is on that one point. He is right. I mean, I don't think How it's like- can you say that... Firing James Comey was a smart move on Donald Trump's part. It has blown up in his face. Absolutely. And I can't imagine, even though Donald Trump never apologizes for anything, I can't honestly believe that if he could do that over, that he would uh, take the same actions, simply because it has deepened the troubles in which he finds himself so uh, thoroughly. Mm -hmm. Um, The Prime Minister of of Malaysia uh, welcomed uh, at the White House yesterday. Uh, It was unusual that... Uh, the president did not have a joint news conference with a foreign leader. Um, why no news conference, do you think, with the prime minister of Malaysia? Well, while not wishing to position myself as an expert on Malaysian politics, uh, the prime minister of Malaysia is a fairly controversial figure, I think it would be fair to say, right? Uh, prone to, um, how would we put this, Bill? Or slightly authoritarian tendencies? Oh, yeah. Right. Um, and I think that it's probably not good politics for the president of the United States in, uh, to be a imprisoning uh, putting putting his political opponents in prison and uh, you know, right. sending the military in uh, to put down uh, um, some minority Muslim, minority Muslim population mm. and yeah that's yeah, authoritarian, well, I think, is a good word. And, of course, one of the criticisms of President Trump is that he seems to have uh, a certain regard for strong men. I mean, people always <laughs> think of Vladimir Putin, but it's not just that. Uh, Recep Erdogan, for example, of Turkey is someone who is also prone to authoritarianism and seems to be uh, liked uh, ja- by Trump. Yeah, Jamie mentioned earlier of some 30, what is it, Jamie, 30-some foreign leaders. 15 of the... Uh, Hold on one second. I'll grab it. 32, maybe it was. 15 of them. Mm. Welcome to the White House so far. Mm. Of the, This is from Annie Linsky's story this morning in the Boston Globe. Of the 13 foreign leaders from sovereign yeah. countries that Trump has invited to the White House so far, 15 of those 32 rule over nations that either score in the bottom half of the global democracy ranking or, or hail yeah. from countries like Saudi Arabia that have no pretense of democratic so 15 rule. 15 out of 32. Mm. That's a disturbingly high ratio, isn't it? I, uh, I would say. Yeah. I mean, no, in fairness, it's no, not. I mean, the United States is not, you know, has been an ally of Saudi Arabia for a long time, and Saudi Arabia is pretty terrible when it comes to democratic norms. But 15 out of 32 is uh, a, bad, a bad score, I would think. Uh, uh, right. And let's also point out the Prime Minister of Malaysia is under investigation by the United States Department of Justice for a multi billion dollar um, scandal, theft, right. basically, of public funds. Uh, so you're, you can see why they didn't have this news conference. But we, as we pointed out earlier, President Obama did play golf with this guy. So it's, Donald Trump's not the first one to cozy sure. up to him on the part of the United States. Uh, there might also have been a question, Niall, about where the prime minister was lodging while he was in Washington. <laughs> there might indeed, as there has been a consistent questions about whether the Trump International Hotel, not too far from where we sit, is uh, can be utilised by f- not just foreign politicians, but by all kinds of people who wish to ingratiate themselves with the president, who wish to uh, basically 
provide some, even though relatively modest, financial benefit to him, or or whether you know staying somewhere else puts you in a rather uh, disapproved uh, position um, by by not doing the done thing and staying at the Trump Hotel. Right, but he stayed there, and uh, yes. and the president thanked him for his investments in the United States, <laughs> in parentheses, <laughs> including Trump hotels, <laughs> including including Trump hotels, exactly. So um, Donald Trump surprised us all at the White House um, with his sudden embrace of a deal uh, on the debt ceiling with and Hurricane Harvey with uh, leader Nancy Pelosi and leader Chuck Schumer. Um, quite a surprise to Paul Ryan and uh, uh, and by. To Paul Ryan, Mr. McConnell, and to his Treasury Secretary, Steve Mnuchin. Yes, who were all in the room whenever Donald Trump was provided various options by members of his own party and by the Democrats and said, Mm -hmm. yeah, I'll go with the Democrats. I'll go with uh, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi. Sources that I speak to talk about the fact that this is partly fueled, they feel, by uh, Trump's annoyance or enmity toward McConnell and Ryan. I mean, he does clearly blame McConnell and Ryan for the failure to uh, repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. There's a broader history of distrust between the Republican establishment and Trump. I mean, during the final weeks of the presidential campaign, as you will remember, Mm -hmm. Bill, Paul Ryan declined to campaign for Trump, confined himself to campaigning for congressional uh, candidates. So there's all of that history there. I I don't think, and when I wrote about this, I didn't didn't write that this is necessarily some great uh, pivot to the center on Donald Trump's part. I think that speculation tends to be uh, overdone. But I do think that it was a, a kind of a shot across the bows of, of uh, Republican leaders. So um, assuming, uh, maybe giving him too much credit, but assuming this strategic, mm. um, a- any bit of strategic thinking on Donald Trump's part, um, politically, he, he's, he's more of a pragmatist than anything mm. else, isn't he? He is, yeah. I mean, I actually think... The extent to which Donald Trump has a fixed ideology is very questionable. Now, when I say that, that's not to deny the things he has said about immigration or about Muslims, which are very hard right. But you go back to TV archives from not that long ago and you find a completely different political persona who is for example, pro-choice on on um, uh, reproductive rights, who of course gave money at various times to to Democrats. So I think he's a a pragmatist. I've always personally felt that Trump looks at politics in the way that a businessman looks at the market, looking for a niche and just tries to fill that niche. And I think he saw among the Republican base an appetite for somebody putting forth the record okay. keepers. So forth. more than any, right, and, and I guess what I'm, the um, translation of what I was saying is that more than anything, he likes to get things done. Right. right. Uh, big things, little things, he just wants to check it off and then he can brag about it right. and take credit for it. And I'm sure in that meeting, he saw pie in the sky, let's go for 18 months, being put forward by the same people who promised him that they would be build Obamacare mm-hmm. by Easter. Mm-hmm. As Steve Bannon told us in 60 Minutes. And then he sees, so so he doesn't really trust them. They've let him down. And he sees Nancy and Chuck who say, yeah, whatever you talk about, 18 months, but we got votes for three months right now. Right. Get it and done. Donald Trump's up, ka-ching, yeah. uh, cross it off, right? Absolutely. Yeah, get it done. And All don't right. bother with this speculative thing months and months out. Right. All right. So now uh, Leader Pelosi and Leader Sh- Schumer are saying, 
Uh, we also have the votes to pass the Dreamers Act. Right. And we can do it. We don't have to wait six months. We can do it. Nancy Pelosi said, we had a little clip yesterday. She said, we can do it in six weeks. Here she is. And so while the president thinks that giving six months time for Congress to act, we want to do that sooner. We're going to do it within six weeks. And hopefully we can by supporting uh, the DREAM Act. Now, we'll have Congressman Ted Lieu in um, just a little bit, and we'll ask him about that. But Congresswoman uh, Jan Schakowsky from Illinois was here last week or a couple of days ago, and Congressman uh, John Yarmuth from Kentucky. And both of them said, you put the DREAM Act on the floor of the House right now, it'll pass. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It'll pass with all the Democrats and enough Republicans. I I think that's quite uh, possible. So could Trump make a deal on on DACA? He could. Getting back to what we said a second ago, it's not totally clear what Trump's position really is on DACA because, of course, the very same day that he uh, sent Jeff Sessions out to essentially end it, he then came out on Twitter later and said, well, you know, if Congress should get it done, basically implying that if Congress uh, put DACA in legislative form rather than the form of an executive order, he would back it. Yeah. That those two positions seem completely contradictory. Right. But so, if, if if that is his intent, if mm-hmm. he wants to get this burden off and and take some credit for actually doing the pro and establishing a Dreamers Protection Act the mm-hmm. right way, mm-hmm. Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer are his key. Yes, right? absolutely. And the broader Issue in the among the public is that the uh, that that DACA has very wide support, somewhere about 65, 70 percent, which is almost unheard of when we're as polarized as we are right now. Now, the question, of course, is whether Trump plays to his base again, as he has done for much of the early part of his presidency. Uh, Would you agree? I mean, isn't it pretty clear that you look at Donald Trump, what we know about him, and he's still a mysterious character, um, that. On a personal, purely personal level, if he had to choose between hanging out with Chuck Schumer or hanging out with Mitch McConnell, <laughs> There's, it's not a tough decision for him, right? <laughs> right? No. Yeah. I mean, he and Schumer, as Nancy said, mm-hmm. speak the same language. Absolutely. Two guys from the outer boroughs of, of oh, yeah. New York. Uh, very... Two street fighters, two scrappers. Exactly. Deal makers. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and just effusive personalities, whereas Mitch McConnell is the most cautious man in Washington, basically. You know, it's very difficult to get McConnell off anything other than his prepared script. And uh, Schumer and Trump are much more kind of backslapping, press the flesh, uh, New York guys. I was reminded yesterday that what uh, Barack Obama once said. You remember they were they were saying that Obama should be, uh, you know, should spend more time with the, mm. with the uh, congressional leaders and, and go out for a beer with them or something. And, and Obama said... You can have a beer with Mitch McConnell. <laughs> you, if you want to, you go have a beer with Mitch McConnell. That's the last thing he wanted to do. So, <laughs> per, per Mitch, not not the most uh, uh, conducive company in the world necessarily. Boy, I agree. I wouldn't want to spend any time with that grouch. You know, I don't know. Um, so last night, uh, in the spirit of bipartisanship, maybe uh, Donald Trump had a little. Dinner in the White House. Guess who came to dinner? Three Democrats, Joe Manchin, Joe Donnelly, and Heidi uh, Heitkamp. Mm-hmm. Um, anything accomplished? Or can we think? Uh, is there any hope that they're going to be able to tackle and accomplish anything on tax reform this year? There is theoretical hope, but I wouldn't put a lot of money on it. I mean, clearly the purpose of that dinner 
those Democrats are not choosing at random. I mean, those are people running for re-election in states that Donald Trump won by a oh, very, yeah. very oh, wide yeah. margin. So therefore, the question is, for him, can he peel them away from the Democratic caucus toward positions that he holds or, to your point, to get things done? I don't think it's anywhere near a done deal, but that's the effort. Two of them he even considered to join his cabinet. Right. right. It's good, the dangled possible cabinet appointments. What, what do you think happened at this dinner last night? Do you think they passed around an invisible tax reform bill? Because it does not exist. I mean, all we know is that he plans on lowering taxes for middle class Americans and that he wants to reduce the corporate tax rate to 15%. That's it, right? Those are the, all the details that currently exist? I, I believe so. And it's a, that's been a big problem with Trump throughout is that his uh, apparent grasp or interest in the legislative detail is not that great. And in tax reform, you're quite right, Jamie. I mean, we only know it in the in the broadest outline. Right. And it's um, first of all, there's tax reform and there are tax cuts. Tax reform is what we really need. Mm. Tax cuts for the middle class, yes, but no more tax cuts for the rich. But that's what they're talking about still. Mm-hmm. When, mm-hmm. You, when you come right down to it, that's all they've talked about so far. Including the famous estate tax or ex- death tax, exactly. as they prepare to talk, tell, call it. And the other thing is, on tax reform, the Republican Party itself is split. Mm-hmm. Yes, and the... the, the I mean, there, there is that kind of Bannonite populist wing that is suggesting that basically government is too corporatist. But that is by, f- you know, it's far from the dominant strain in the Republican Party. The Republican Party is still overwhelmingly the party of business and the party of richer people. And I think its broad stance on tax policy demonstrates that. Uh, so your beat is the White House. How long does uh, John Kelly stay? Well, I have a piece just this morning that's talking about Kelly having made uh, an impact in in at least the decision-making processes and making the White House a smoother operation, uh, in contrast from how chaotic it was before. Now, the other separate point that gets to your question, Bill, is whether Kelly wants to stay. He was clearly very uncomfortable with uh, Trump's remarks about Charlottesville, for example, visibly uncomfortable in that famous clip that I think NBC played. Um, And the question is whether he can, um, you know, retain his position there and retain his own (laughs) sense of self-respect and, 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 you know, fulfillment in the job, which we don't we don't know whether that's the case. Gentlemen, if you'll indulge me, uh, our friend Alex Jones has a conspiracy theory about John Kelly and what he may be doing to Trump. Can I play the clip here? But I've talked to people multiple ones, and they believe that they are putting a slow sedative that they're building up that's also addictive in his Diet Cokes and in his iced tea, and that the president by six or seven at night is basically slurring his words (laughs) and is drugged. God bless Alex Jones. That's a real creative one. I mean, he was very specific in the Diet Cokes. We know Trump loves Diet Coke. John so, Kelly may may have a real plan here, folks. Case case proven. There it is. Exactly. Uh, oh God. But but Kelly had to know what he was getting into when he took this job. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it was well for a start. He was obviously a member of the cabinet to start. You know, before before yeah, that. Yeah. So he would have heard all the stories. Would have been aware of the inner workings. He has, according to my sources, definitely cut down on the 
A, the number of people who can just sort of stroll into the Oval Office and have a chat or get their views put across, and B, uh, cut down on the kind of uh, dubious information that had been getting to the president. All that now has to go through a guy called Rob Porter, who's the White House Staff Secretary. So that's an attempt to put some order on things. But, of course, Donald Trump is Donald Trump. Well, I was going to say, how does Donald Trump accept... Um limits on on uh, you know his accessibility if right, you will right and that's one of the things that one of the people uh, quoted in my story was talking about the fact that Donald Trump likes that free flow of information this source was saying he likes gossip he likes you know tittle tattle and that is being cut down and you know to what extent will Trump bridle against those restraints how fast and how vigorously will he do so these are questions that we will soon find the answer to, I imagine. Uh, Donald Trump, of course, is interested in uh, how he's going to be remembered by presidential historians. He's already made history in one sense. Yesterday, um, we have seen, this is um, September 2017, nine months into the first year of his presidency, eight months into his presidency, and they rolled out yesterday the first presidential campaign ad for 2020, believe it or not, here it is. Career politicians and the media trying to stop him. But President Trump is fighting for America. Over one million new jobs, companies investing billions in America, stock market reaching all-time record highs, our border more secure, cracking down on MS-13, our economy winning again, Americans working again, our country strong again. Americans are saying, let President Trump do his job and make America great again. I'm Donald Trump, and I approve this message. Niall, what's going on? Is he that afraid of a Republican challenge to to him in 2020, or is he just the, you know, a forever candidate? Personally, I think probably the second. I think Donald Trump, one of his actual skills is branding and repeating the same message over and over, make America great again, whatever. That ad, I noticed, you know, strength border security, the economy, but wrapped into this idea that all the criticism is stemming from A, the media, or B, political enemies, and yeah. is therefore oh, no, it's unfair. Classic, it's all classic Trump, right? Right, right. Yeah. And real Americans... And make America great again. Right. And real Americans want him to just be let do his job. Yeah. But, I mean, isn't it... It's certainly unusual. Four years early. And he's already had, as we know, campaign rallies. Mm-hmm. He's had campaign fundraisers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know whether he's filed his papers. It may be too early to right. file his papers. I but thought he filed. It, I thought he, he filed papers to form a committee I right think he after did. he was an no, I think he did. Yeah. I think he did. Now, come to think of it, but um, it, it's just bizarre. I mean, it, mm-hmm. to me, and it it does reflect. I think maybe a little uh, paranoia. Right? Yeah. I, I, the other thing I'd say, Bill, is that Donald Trump is very obsessed with. Metrics, polls, the size of audiences, things like that. Obviously, his poll ratings are very bad and have been for some time. I think it's entirely an ad like that, and the campaigning tactics that you referred to are maybe part of an effort to try to try to boost that up a little bit. Right. Um, so, uh, what marks? Uh, we've seen a big change uh, at the briefings, most notably that Sarah Sanders doesn't hesitate to give her briefings on camera just mm-hmm. about every day. That whole idea of sometimes you can, sometimes you can't, mm-hmm. sometimes you can use audio, sometimes you can't. She's just flat out there. Um, 
if you were uh, her teacher giving her a little scorecard on her job as press secretary, how do you rate uh, how Sarah Sanders is doing? It, you know, being press secretary for Donald Trump is never going to be an easy job. <laughs> so we'll we'll preface ev- statement. We'll preface right. everything with that. I think she's doing a better job than Sean Spicer uh, did. Now that may be a low bar in certain uh, ways. I agree. But um, now she is prone to sarcasm, which I don't always think works for anybody in in a kind of public sphere it can i know she's trying to be humorous but it can sound slightly embittered or something or uh, yeah i know it sounds like she's got a chip on her shoulder right she snaps at people i mean she yeah. yeah yeah so so those things are are um you know on on the downside but i don't think you know premised on the fact that she is press secretary for the trump white house I actually don't think she's doing that bad a job. If you hate the Trump White House, you're not going to think Sarah Sanders is great. But as a press secretary, I don't think she's doing a terrible job. I bet, I bet Donald Trump loves the job that she's doing. You know, Hope Hicks officially announced his communication, communications director yesterday now. What, what's, uh, how do you think she's going to do? I, I think that her loyalty to Donald Trump personally is her main qualification for the job. A communications director has typically been a job that looks at more medium and long-term planning. She has no uh, particular experience in that, and I don't say that disrespectfully of her, Mm -hmm. but a lot of people in Trump's orbit are where they are because of their loyalty to him, and I think that's true. She is my age, by the way. She's 28 years old. Is that right? Mm Mm-hmm. And well, look where I am, right? And no, look where okay. you are, right? You've got a more <laughs> important job than she's got. Uh, yes, indeed. There are big challenges facing the United States Congress. This challenge by Donald Trump to do something about the Dreamers Act. Uh, and uh, we've also got Bernie Sanders introducing Medicare for All, with many sponsors of that in the United States House of Representatives as well. Congressman Ted Lieu from California joins me and Niall Stanage and all the rest of you coming up here in the next half hour. The FBI. Download our podcast, search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes, and remember to rate, review, and subscribe. This is The Bill Press Show. Live video, Bill's commentary, the best clips from the show, all in one place. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Yes, here we go on this Wednesday, September 13. Uh, hello, everybody. Welcome back. Uh, wrapping up here, The Bill Press Show. And we're, we're coming to you live from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, and brought to you today by the American Federation of Government Employees, those good men and women of the AFGE under President J. David Cox, who keep our federal agencies running day in and day out, not just here in Washington, of course, but all across uh, the country, serving the American people. Proud to get up to and work for America every day. But check out their good work at uh, AFGE.org. Someone else who's proud to work for America, particularly the people of California's 33rd Congressional District, uh, joining us in studio, Congressman Ted Lou from California. Hey, Congressman. Good, good to see you. You too, Bill. Thank you. Thank you for coming in again and joining Niall Stanage, uh, White House columnist for The Hill, uh, as we cover the news day now. Good to have you with us. Absolutely. So, Congressman, I was uh, stunned uh, last week. I learned something from uh, Speaker Paul Ryan because I've heard 
so many Democratic members of Congress, including you, sir, I would come in and, and bemoan the fact that you come back to Washington to get a lot of things done and doesn't seem to be a lot of things getting done. That's not the way Paul Ryan puts it. Here's the speaker last week. We've actually passed more bills in the House for the president and his agenda in this first six months of his administration than in the first six months of Obama, Clinton, and both Bushes. The House has passed 316 bills. That's a record pace. Now, 260 of them are still in the Senate. The Senate's busy working on judges and appointees and the rest. But the House has been extremely productive, not just extremely productive. The House has been more productive than any Congress in the modern era. The most productive Congress in the modern era, Congressman. Okay. That's one of the most ridiculous statements I've heard in quite a while. And the speaker doesn't seem to understand that the goal of what we're doing is not to pass a lot of bills that gets ignored by the Senate and the White House. The goal is actually to pass laws that help the American people. And so what ends up happening is Speaker Ryan set up this bizarre metric where he just measures based on how much extreme bills can you lob over the Senate yeah. and then they don't get acted upon. So it's really a waste of taxpayer resources, a waste of the time of members of Congress. But yes, we pass a whole bunch of bills to the Senate that will be completely ignored. And so that's what's happening. What would you say of significance that the House has accomplished this year? So uh, what's ironic is perhaps the most significant legislative accomplishment in the first six months was a Russia sanctions bill that President Trump opposed and he was forced to sign. So that was really the major accomplishment of Congress in the first six months. Hmm. Would you um, say, uh, agree with some, what some members have told me, that a second significant accomplishment could be uh, a Dreamers Act if it came to the floor of the House. Absolutely. And you have both Republicans now as well as Democrats saying that children who were brought here uh, should not be punished and sent back to a country they have never known. You have 69% of Trump supporters in a recent poll supporting Dreamers and DACA. And I think there is momentum to get the DREAM Act put in legislatively. So Democrats would support and enough Republicans would support, right? We'll see if there's enough Republicans, yeah, but every right. day we get more and we're gaining momentum. Is Paul Ryan uh, inclined to put that bill on the floor? <laughs> he told Donald Trump to not get rid of the DACA program. So if Paul <laughs> Ryan were to follow through on his principles, he would allow a vote on the Dreamers bill. He would allow a vote. Yeah. If he followed his principles, because before Donald Trump eliminated the DACA program, he told Donald Trump, do not do that. Not to get rid of it. Yeah. The, the, the broader um, suggestion that I hear from some fairly moderate or centrist Republicans is the idea of tying DACA to some kind of increased so-called border uh, enforcement or border security enforcement, some increased measures there. Is that something that Democrats would countenance at all, even, you know, even if it wasn't the border, right. the, the infamous border wall. So I believe what we need is comprehensive immigration reform. And the problem with DACA is a symptom of not having comprehensive immigration reform. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> having said that, I don't have a philosophical objection to having increased border security. I will oppose a wall. That's just stupid. Um, it is inefficient and it's a waste of taxpayer resources. But if you want to have increased border security through other means, I think that's something that I would look at and I believe other Democrats would look at. Mm -hmm. um, but a standalone Dreamers bill, I guess, would be 
the best option from your point of view, correct? Uh, absolutely. And I think there's momentum to do that. And we'll see if uh, Speaker Ryan is true to his principles and puts it on the floor for a vote. And, and then deal with some of the other issues in the comprehensive bill. Um, I, I, I've, I've heard that there is a discharge position circulating in the House. Are you aware of that? And is it making any progress? I am. So the discharge petition is this process where you can force a vote on the floor of the House if you have 218 people sign it. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is you basically have members of Congress go to the floor of the House and put their signature down saying, we want to discharge this bill. So it moves out of committee onto the floor. It's We're sort of ha- a way of overriding the speaker, correct? That is correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it has been done before. We did it in order to uh, reauthorize the Export-Import Bank. So there hmm. is precedence for doing this. And and is it what what's the progress on DACA? Uh, we'll know later this month. Okay. Yeah. But but Republicans or at least some Republicans are feeling the political pressure on DACA in your opinion. Uh, absolutely. You hmm. you have Republicans uh in the Senate that are co-authoring bills uh, to put in DACA legislatively. You've had a number of Republicans in the House also make statements that they believe DACA should be preserved. Uh, I have to ask, are, are you a physician? Do I remember that? No. No, but my doctor, uh, my, my brother <laughs> my brother uh, is a doctor. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. And my parents remind me of that. Uh, not, <laughs> not, that not that it matters, but, but in terms of my question, I wanted to ask you, because today is a significant day in the Senate where Senator Bernie Sanders is introducing his bill, Medicare for All, uh, with the support of 15 Democratic senators, where... Bernie, in the past, has always been the lonely only on that right. bill. Uh, and John Conyers in the House has more people signed up on his Medicare for All bill than uh, ever in the past. Uh, where do you stand on Medicare for All? Is this the answer? Yes. Uh, I'm a co-author of the John Conyers bill. When I was in the California state legislature, I co-authored every single payer bill. I believe uh, that's what we need to do. I'm very pleased that we have more and more Democrats coming uh, to that conclusion. And in the state of California, there's also a single-payer bill, and I urge the California State Assembly to pass it. What are the advantages of for the American people of single-payer or uh, Medicare for all? They're- sure. It, it, one, it's uh, vastly more efficient, right? Um, so health insurance companies, um, what they basically do, how they make money, is they take premiums from consumers and then they try not to give out a lot of medical care. It's just the way they're designed. And uh, that is costing a lot of money. So if you had single payer, it would eliminate uh, that entire process. And it's a much more efficient system. And everybody gets covered. Bernie Sanders has an op-ed in the New York Times this morning where he points out that the United States spends an average of $10,000 per person on Medicare, Medicaid, uh, health care. Uh, and there are still 28 million Americans who are not covered, whereas in the U.K. Uh, and in France and Britain and Canada, they spend about half of that, and everybody's covered. To me, that right. makes a pretty I mean, argument. There's no real argument that we have a vastly inefficient medical system in the United States. And costly. But is it, uh, just to Bill's point, because as he alluded from my accent, yes. I'm not born in this mm. country, the <laughs> argument for, for universal health care was won in the United Kingdom 70, 60 to 70 years ago, admittedly over opposition at the time, but it was won. But that 
means that in this country there has been 60 or 70 years of people who profit from the existing system uh, strengthening their position or, or mm-hmm. digging in. So just how um, relentless or how intense is the opposition that one has to overcome in order to enact something like Medicare? Oh, it's, it's extremely intense, and that's a very good point. You have vested stakeholders with a lot of money uh, that they can spend in our political system. And unlike the UK, uh, America has this problem with campaign finance, where vast amounts of political money flood our elections, especially after a Citizens United decision. And that does make things harder in the US, whether it's uh, healthcare or climate change or, or other issues, money does pervert democracy. Mm-hmm. Should the Should Medicare for all be a litmus test for Democrats in 2018? I don't think we should have litmus tests. I think what we need to do is take back the House and take back the Senate. And at the end of the day, uh, each member of Congress has to represent their district. And uh, my district, which has beautiful Malibu and Santa Monica, is not going to be the same as someone's district in uh, Minnesota, for example. And I think different members need to represent uh, their constituents the best way that they can. Uh, and so that um, there, there, in fact, among the leadership today, um, there are some, uh, among Democrats, uh, some various approaches. Uh, yesterday, Leader Pelosi said, I think we ought to be focusing on making sure that Obamacare is not destroyed by the Trump administration. That ought to be our first priority. Uh, on the Senate side, a Senator um, um, uh, Sherrod Brown from Ohio and Debbie Stabenow from Michigan have said, well, we like this Medicare for all, but let's take one step first, right. which is Medicare for everybody 55 or older can buy into Medicare. So I guess right. we're saying these are all variations on a theme that are all sort of okay for Democrats. Well, Lita Pelosi is correct. If Obamacare get destroyed, that's actually a step backwards from right. getting to Medicare yep. for all. So yep. at the very least, we need to preserve the Affordable Care Act, and then we build upon that mm-hmm. and get to Medicare for all. So I should go back to one of your first questions uh, when you mentioned Speaker Ryan and, and yeah. ac- accomplishments. One of the biggest accomplishments is having the House and Senate not repeal Obamacare in the first six months. Right. And so um, you that can also a, look at negative things, that, I was things say, that, that didn't a, happen. That was a, yeah, uh, a negative accomplishment. So, <laughs> d- d- you know, you do represent what such a great district and a district that I lived in and love, uh, that part of the world. Um, but it, it, generally, among the American people, is among the American people, to Niles' point, is is the support growing for single payer? Oh, absolutely! Uh, every year that passes, more and more people support single payer because they realize how inefficient and costly the system is. And while the Affordable Care Act was amazing in bringing in more people who are insured, uh, like every other type of healthcare reform, uh, it has not capped costs, and costs keep rising although more slowly than they would have without the Affordable Care Act, but it does still rise. And so I think eventually we're going to have to shift to Medicare for All because it's the only viable model that can help ensure everyone in America. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to ask you about a, a little breaking news item um, from CNN this morning. I just got on my phone um, from CNN on the Russian investigation. Dem- Democrats send the special counsel a letter saying that former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn failed to disclose a trip to broker a Saudi-Russian business deal. Um, whatever we know about that, 
What does this tell you about the Russian investigation? It's not going away, is it? It is not. I, I'm on the Foreign Affairs Committee. That letter was uh, from a Ranking Member Engo on the Foreign Affairs Committee, as well as Ranking Member Cummings of the Oversight Committee. And it shows, again, that you had a lot of lying by Trump officials. So Michael Flynn fails to disclose on his security clearance form this trip and his contacts with these foreign nationals. I filled out these security clearance forms before. Uh, they're known as SF-15s. And I just looked at the last one I filled out. Over a third of it had to deal with your contacts with foreign nationals and foreign trips. You can't finish that form and not think, huh, foreign national contacts are really important to the United States government. So really? when yeah. you don't disclose that, it's intentional. And when you certify it, it actually says if you omit uh, material information, uh, that is a felony. So Michael Flynn is in deep, deep trouble. And by the way, Jerry Kushner did the same thing twice. He had to submit three security clearance forms to finally get it right. Michael Flynn's been fired. I don't know why Jerry Kushner still has a security clearance. I don't know why he still has a job. Uh, well, <laughs> uh, as you, this, this, I'm surprised that you knew this much about this letter. I didn't realize where the letter came from. I had just seen, uh, seen the headline. But it does mean that this Russian investigation, I mean, there's, it's not just a witch hunt, right? I mean, this is a serious investigation with serious consequences. Absolutely. The, and the reason you don't know, you know that's not a witch hunt is you can look at the actions of the special counsel. So special counsel Mueller comes in. He looks at the evidence. And what's the first thing he does? He doesn't sort of say, hey, I need more investigators to sort of figure out what's going on. He hires a bunch of prosecutors. And you hire prosecutors to prosecute. Mm -hmm. And the folks he hires are folks who are experts in criminal law, in foreign corruption, in bribery, and money laundering. He then convenes a grand jury. Uh, that's the one step before indictment. So you can tell from his actions that he clearly sees there's evidence there uh, of crimes. Right. Is the House Intelligence Committee still on the case? Uh, they are, although... Uh, it's not clear what Devin Nunes's role is. He's supposed to have recused himself, and then you see him right. signing things, yeah. uh, dealing with the Russian investigation. So it's not clear uh, what he's doing. Uh, I personally think that he intentionally misled the American people, and he really should not be on that committee at all. Despite the best efforts of Adam Schiff to keep that on track and to keep them going. I mean, th 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 between Nunez and whoever took his place, I forget, yeah. or in the Russian side of it, I mean, they seem to have done everything they can to impede that investigation. Yeah. Adam is doing a great job. Yeah. Um, but he has to deal with uh, some of his Republican colleagues that really are off the reservation. Right. What's the big picture here? Because I think a lot of people can get not necessarily lost, but confused because we see so many, you know, small things with Michael Flynn, small thing about this, that and the other. And people sometimes get lost in the weeds of the Russia investigation. What's the what's the big picture of where we are, in your opinion? Sure, that's a great question. It can be very complicated. There's been a thousand stories on it. So I'm just going to give you three undisputed, simple things. We know last year that Russia engages this massive cyber attack and influence campaign to undermine our democracy help Donald Trump hurt Secretary Clinton. We know that the Trump campaign went to great lengths to help the Russians through their GOP platform. They went against advice of every foreign policy expert that was conservative, did nothing there on Ukraine or anything bad about Russia or Ukraine's defenses. And now we know, thirdly, based on the free press, there's been communications between the two camps. So there's only really three conclusions. Either the Trump campaign officials were naive and didn't know what was going on, and they were unwitting participants in this Russian operation, 
Or second, they knew what was going on but didn't want to ask too many questions, sort of a nod, nod, wink, wink sort of thing. If that happened, some federal laws may have been violated. Or third, they coordinated with the Russians. If that's the case, then I think the president should be impeached. Uh, you're waiting for a Robert. But that's, that's, a, that's a pretty heavy shoe to drop. Uh, so you're, you're on that issue. You're waiting for Robert Mueller's report. Yes, as well as that of the various congressional committees. The U.S. Senate seems to be taking this seriously. So that both their Judiciary and Intelligence Committees and the U.S. Senate, they don't look like they think this is a witch hunt. They look like they're taking this seriously. Right. Um, you have uh, raised some questions uh, in the past, Congressman, um, about Donald Trump's mental capacity to to govern. Um, we've seen him now uh, eight months in that position. Uh, you still have that opinion? That's... So a lot of folks after me raised that issue as well. Uh, I had a very simple uh, suggestion, uh, which is, you know, Congress actually put in law that there needed to be the White House physician uh, in the early 1900s. And they did that because they realized that the president is a human being, and human beings uh, can be frail. Uh, They're susceptible to various ailments and so on. They didn't at that time put in anything regarding mental health because there was a stigma, right, about mental health. Mm -hmm. In the 21st century, we now understand that mental health can often be just as important or more important than physical health. And so my idea was simply... Well, that was sort of an outdated law. We need to just simply update it for 21st century, which says, well, in addition to to White House physician, you really should have a White House psychologist or psychiatrist on hand um, so that if the president or vice president wants to seek some counseling, they can do it in private. The press doesn't have to know about it. It's something that can assist them. It really was to help the executive branch. So that was my idea. Right. Uh, Should there be a... um maybe a mental test before that person takes the oath of office or is allowed to run for president? I don't know enough about the science to know how how well those tests would actually work. So it'd be hard for me to comment on that. And and aren't uh, Americans, isn't the what is the Psychiatric Association or whatever, don't they have a, a rule that they don't comment on the mental health of a president by just as professionals, they're they just sworn not to do that. They're, they do have that rule, and it, it, it's interesting. They seem to be the only <clears throat> medical profession that has that rule. And you, um, now, so, now, other okay. uh, folks have have broken yes. that rule and gone. And you've you've had psychiatrists and psychologists go on record saying that they do believe uh, Donald Trump has you know X, Y, or Z issues. Right. And do you? I mean, do you believe that he's? Totally mentally capable of so, fit so, to govern? So have, let me tell you why. About uh, so I have a bill, H.R. 669, okay. uh, that deals with nuclear weapons. And in order to launch nuclear weapons, basically it takes just two people, the president and the secretary of defense, who under law just has to execute that order, mm-hmm. and then nuclear weapons launch. Right. So Ed Markey and I introduced this bill um, because – we believe it's just unconstitutional. The framers never would have allowed one person to launch thousands of nuclear weapons that can kill hundreds of millions of people because that would be war. And only Congress has the power to declare war. So our bill says you can't launch nuclear weapons as a first strike without getting authorization from Congress. One of the reasons we did that is because in the past, folks knew that, right, 
a very small amount of people could destroy the world, but they relied on the president uh, as the check and balance, as a constraint. And so whether you supported uh, Bush or Obama or Bill Clinton, you didn't think that they might be unhinged. People now are looking at this going, huh, what if our current president is really, really angry, has a really bad day, and is really upset at the dictator of North Korea? Might he just launch nuclear weapons? That is not an unreasonable thought. And so um, it doesn't take a psychologist or a psychiatrist to think of that thought, and that's why we're getting more and more supporters of, of this legislation. Um, so, you know, I can't diagnose a, a president uh, because I'm not a, a doctor, but it doesn't take a doctor to look and go, huh, I think something is not quite right in the Oval Office. Right. Uh, and we might have a president who is unhinged, to use a word, I guess, right, and making that decision. And, and that decision, what do they have? Something like five to eight minutes to make that decision. It's frightening mm. the way it is. Yeah. Right. Well, so let me clarify. The bill would apply to a premeditated first strike. It wouldn't stop the United States from acting in self-defense should mm-hmm. we right. th- I think it. an attack is coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Congressman, what about um, any other priorities on we – and Niall and I were talking about this a little earlier. Is tax reform a possibility this year? Do you see it as, in the cards? It's possible. I have no objection to voting for lower taxes if it's paid for. <laughs> what I object to is any tax plan that's not paid for, meaning it will blow up uh, our federal deficit even more and add to our federal debt. So there is a dispute right now between the Republicans in Congress who want a revenue-neutral tax plan, meaning it's paid for, and the White House. Uh, they, as you know, a few months ago put out a one-page piece of paper that had sort of their tax concepts and it just was not paid for. They were just simply going to um, blow a hole through a federal deficit and federal debt. Right. But uh, and, and still, we haven't seen a bill. So the idea that they're going to get something done between now and the end of the year seems uh, uh, very unlikely. Well, you got many, many things on your plate, Congressman. So we'll let you get back to work. But thanks for coming in all the way from Malibu and Santa Monica to uh, our studio here on Capitol Hill. Thank you. Anytime. Great to see you. And Niall Stanage, always good to have you on board, sir. Always a pleasure, Bill. Have a great day, folks. We'll see you tomorrow. Fresh show.